0: Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. I'm Ali Hill. Before we jump into today's episode, there's not a workplace that hasn't been impacted over the last eighteen months by COVID nineteen. How we work has fundamentally changed. We're doing it from home, from the office, from the cafe, from anywhere, really. So how do leaders and teams deliver ongoing high performance in this new hybrid way of working? Well, we've written a book on this very challenge. It's called Work From Anywhere, The Essential Guide to Becoming a World-Class Hybrid Team. It's practical, relevant, and a guide for leaders and teams, something that we navigated across 2020, but also incorporating research and science of organisations all around the world. So if you are a leader, if you have a leader, if you work in a team that is navigating this new world of work, then this book's for you. On to today's episode. What does a political economist and a cancer scientist have in common? Well, it turns out quite a lot. After meeting at a festival, Gus Harvey and Tane Hunter found a commonality in challenging ideas, which has been the basis of founding their business, Future Crunch. Future Crunch are a group of scientists, artists, researchers and entrepreneurs that believe science and technology are creating a world that is more peaceful, connected and abundant. Gus and Tane are on a mission to foster a thing which I love. They call it intelligent optimism about the future. In this conversation, we unpack the role of adaptability and the opportunity to find optimism even when things look a long way from being optimistic. So please enjoy this in-depth conversation with Gus and Tane.
1: Gus and Tane, welcome. It's fantastic to have you both here um, and fantastic to connect with you.
2: So excited to be here. We we can't wait for how this conversation is going to
3: go. <laughs> Thank you, Alison. It's great to be on the podcast.
1: Oh, uh, look, there's uh there's plenty of of inputs and and ways and angles that we're gonna dive into. But my number one question, and Gus, I'm gonna to go to you first to answer this one and then Tane, I'll come to you. But how does a political editor, uh, economist and a cancer scientist go into business together?
3: Well, it it all starts uh, on a dark, stormy night uh, at a psychedelic (laughs) festival in the early part of the last decade. (laughs) uh and i met at a festival uh, and became good friends and the friendship later developed into a business relationship Uh, and so we spent the last six or seven years doing all the wrong things which is um, mixing indiscriminately between the
1: personal and the professional (laughs) what everyone says not to do from your perspective um Tane what was it what was the point where maybe you kind of went hey there might be a business venture in this do you remember what that was
2: I think most of what Gus and I do is just argue constantly but we we came to from the side of uh, you know a political economist and the side of science you get more of a universal view of the world and so he brought in my mind and hopefully I brought into his mind and then we we kind of figured out that people liked what we came up with. We disagree about so much stuff, and but what we share is what we agree on. And I feel that's when it became a business. People really enjoyed not only the conflict and the tension, but a, a bit more of a nuanced approach and a, a bit broader of... I guess a view of the world, a more universal narrative, bringing in friendship, bringing in fun, but also bringing in science and social social sciences as well, like hard science and well, soft science. Gus pretends he's a scientist, but he's not. He's not really. Let's be honest.
1: (laughs) And let the debating begin.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Look, it's very difficult to have a business partnership when your partner is wrong all the time. (laughs)
1: Someone's got to do it. Someone's got to be right. Okay. <laughs> but it does. Yeah, the
3: problem with
2: thinking that you're right all the time is you never realize when you're wrong, which is Gus's main problem.
1: <laughs> I, I actually want to sit on this for a moment. We'll come back to, um, you know, what you saw the business was. But I... I'm wondering about our ability to disagree, to get into debate and how important that is in our world, in our society, in our conversations, whether it's with our family, in our places of work, or even in our kind of community gatherings and settings where I don't know, and I'm interested in your take around whether you're seeing people are either right or wrong. And if you're not with me, you're against me. You're either you know, it's either this way or that way, whether we are kind of losing a little bit of the art of the debate. Gus, I can see you nodding. What what comes to mind when you hear that? The, the, the being able to demonstrate that ability to be able to come from different perspectives.
3: It's a, I think it's a a great question, Alison. And it comes, I think where Tane and I maybe are lucky is that we both come from pretty strong academic backgrounds. Uh, Tane's uh, finishing his PhD at the moment. I I did my PhD uh, at the London School of Economics, and there's a really strong tradition in academia of, challenging uh, people for their ideas, uh, asking them to prove it, um, saying, I I don't agree with what you're saying there. Can you there's a sort of a a dialogue, I suppose, that you get trained on, especially if you spend a long time in academia. And so both of us came from a background of having our ideas challenged. And I think if you do that for long enough, when someone challenges your ideas, it doesn't cause a fight or flight response, It, it forces you to sharpen your thinking and to be able to respond quickly and accurately. And that, I think, uh, gave both of us a a pretty strong grounding when it came to establishing a thought leadership brand, which was that we, we were able to bring really good, Gold-plated research and evidence to our arguments, uh, as opposed to just you know it being our opinions. But then we also in our own conversations, and in our conversations with clients, or in our conversations, you know, with audiences, the uh, the feeling of being challenged doesn't cause you to to attack. The feeling of being challenged causes you to think a bit further. And and that actually, and then something that I then took um, over the years as we kind of developed further as a brand, especially from the world of science. And this is something that I learned from Tane is this idea. Of something called strong opinions, lightly held, uh, which is that you you have big ideas and and you you have. Potentially controversial ideas, but you always include the possibility that you might be wrong. Maybe, and the way I like to think about it is, I move through the world with a ninety percent um, certainty rating on everything. So I, I do as much research as I can do. I, I try to form an opinion, but I always include a ten percent possibility that I might be wrong. And so that when new evidence or better thinking then comes along, uh, it's easier for me to gracefully change my mind rather than saying this is a fundamental threat to my entire identity, and anyone who challenges mm-hmm. me is evil and terrible and must be put down immediately.
2: And I think that the power of that type of thinking, especially within an organization, if you can show your team and and your peers that your ideas have room to evolve, then it gives a safe space for them to... change their ideas too. And that's super important because a safe space to be able to be wrong and to mull over something and change your opinion is powerful because in, you know, the the world we live in this complex world collaboration always trumps genius. So if you can bring people along for the ride and change together, that's far more important than being right.
1: What have you seen? I love that, tone around creating that safe space. How do leaders do that, particularly when time might be the challenge and we actually need to get to an answer? We need to agree. How, do, how have you seen leaders create that safe space?
2: Well, I think Gus nailed it. Leaders who who believe that they can be wrong all the time is a great way to start, because <laughs> that allows for rather than bulldozing through towards a strategy or your quarterly goals or anything like that, you're actually much more fluid and dynamic in what you do. You need you need a, a guiding light, a navigational light, you know, a goalpost, but the ability to navigate through that in not a straight line or not through purely numbers in a way to create more value than you capture Uh, the ability to think outside just the monetary gains and what you need to get your bottom line at is the way great leadership looks like i think the ability to adapt and evolve um, and be wrong and also just put yourself in a broader perspective like um because leaders are essentially HR managers. CEOs are dealing with people. They're not dealing necessarily with the technology. They're dealing with creating a space for people to innovate and evolve and iterate quickly. And I think that's what leadership, effective leadership looks like.
1: So true. I love that statement, create more value than you capture to be able to kind of have an impact on. So you met at a festival, became friends, and then saw the seed of a business coming together. Business is called Future Crunch. Gus, I'm going to go to you. What what was the business when you started it and has it evolved?
3: The business was a side hustle when we first started. I was unemployed at the time and looking for some work and I said to Tane, why don't we do a talk together and uh, we'll see if uh, I can impress some potential employers. I didn't impress any potential employers. But there was something there in the collaboration, as Tani said, between someone who viewed the world through the lens of political economy and someone who viewed the world through the lenses of science and technology. There was this really rich, beautiful seam of um, thinking that kind of came in the confidence of those two things. And when we both finished the, that initial experiment, we thought, no, there's definitely something here. Uh, we were lucky enough that enough that, that a few people saw us in those early years and thought the same and said to us, we will pay you to come and uh, speak to us and, and share your thinking with us as well, uh, which still amazes me, by the way. The fact that people will pay you for your thinking um, and your unique perspective on things, but I think uh, don't tell
1: them, don't like, don't change, don't mix that. All right, we
3: we feel like imposters all the time.
2: <laughs> Just
1: keep it on the quiet.
3: Um, but I think that you know there it, it, there's increasingly and as Tane said you know this world the world is so complex now that if you can have people who can simplify curate and make sense of just so many of the different things that are going on uh, in a way that is useful and allows you uh, as an organization or, or as an individual to kind of navigate through the the mess of complexity that's a that's a valuable service um, and so future crunch has evolved now into i suppose you could call it a think tank and and we have a pretty simple mission which is to seek out and tell stories of human progress and to understand what's happening on the cutting edges of science and technology so it's about giving people uh, and organizations the knowledge and power they need to really stay ahead as we move forward into this in- amazing new era i think uh, that the next decade is going to be
1: as you say, that in amongst the complexity and the speed of change and the the sheer velocity, I mean, change has always been here, but certainly the velocity, which then allows you know, we're in a space where there can be so many options, but sometimes those options are incredibly confusing. Having um, a voice to be able to simplify and cut through is is really key and important. Mm. We're going to have a chat about what you're calling the the great transformation in a moment, but before we do, I'm interested in. There's this thing called COVID-19 that kind of happened and impacted organisations and and is continuing to across the globe. What impact did that have on you both individually but also your team last year in 2020, so just over 12 months ago? What impact did it have at that moment and how how did your team navigate those changes?
2: Uh, With difficulty, uh... Um, Having said that, like going back to the origin story, I knew that this would be a great business with Gus because I can always count on him to get shit done and do it the right way. And when we first did the first presentation, I broke my arm and Gus is like on a bad bike accident. And he's like, Tane's out. This was like 10 days before. But I still showed up and we did it. And so we basically put our heads down and just kept producing content through the lens of intelligent optimism, gold-plated stories about how people, through the darkest of times, are finding ways to adapt and progress and make the world a better place. And that's what kept us afloat. Having said that, we both got depressed at different times. It was very difficult. It was a shock to the world. You know, I've lost loved ones. It's affected us all. But having said that, being able to prop yourself up on stories of thousands, if not millions, of people going out there and, you know, doing the hard yards to save people's lives and creating better solutions really kept us and the team afloat through. Through a very dark time. And I, I think that's the power of storytelling. If you can tell yourself a story of hope, especially if it's evidence-based, it gives you a, a better path. It redraws the boundaries of what's possible and shows how a better world and future can come about. And I, that's really what got me in particular. And I think Gus could say the same, but I'll let Gus uh, give you that one. But that's what got me through it. And I think that's it's a powerful tool
1: Oh, hugely powerful tool. And Tane, I might just stay with you for a moment, but in terms of, and thank you for sharing that, what was the kind of doubts or the uncertainty that came to mind for you? And and was there any particular stories that kind of helped you find those kind of threads of hope?
2: Uh, I think the story of the way science and scientists came together. They basically dropped everything and brought a vaccine or multiple vaccines to fruition in the quickest amount of time. They actually work collaboratively rather than you know, in their own silos. Because you can often be in a scientific organization like a hospital or a research institution, and people are like, mine, mine, mine. Mine, mine, mine over here, and it was just great to see the story of how science evolved to get vaccines rolled out at such a rapid pace was a story that gives me great hope. And I hope science doesn't go back to the research business-focused, you know, I guess like IP sort of ideas um, or way way of doing research um, because science works much better on a collaborative scale, especially if we want to solve the world's biggest problems like climate change or a global pandemic, uh, I think that's really important. So I hope it, it stays that way and that gave
3: me great hope.
1: And the speed of it, as you say, as well. Gus, going to you, what were the, what were the times or what were the things that were tough?
3: COVID-19 was such a shock to the system. Uh, It was really difficult. Uh, I think it's easy to gloss over just how shocking and upsetting those first few months were um, as the stories started piling in from around the world. And in some senses, I think we've become numb to a lot of those stories now. We're still seeing horrific stories from every corner of the planet. But I suppose we've adapted and that's become our new normal. But I I remember those first few months, we thought the business was going to go under. Uh, You know, we rely on... Our job overnight became illegal. Um, Our job is to gather in groups, large groups of people and share ideas together and work with large groups of people to to come up with solutions. And if we continued doing our jobs in the way we used to, we would have been, you know, that that actually was actually against the law. So like many people, we had to make the digital transition, pivoted to to virtual, you know, I'm sure those stories have been told many, many times, We, we were no exception. But I remember especially those first six months going through some some pretty dark times. We, uh, both Tane and I, as Tane has mentioned, got pretty depressed, uh, thought that there might not be a future for the business. At the same time, I think like many businesses, we spun out a new arm um, of uh, a new revenue stream Uh, which was our newsletter platform um, and started charging for that as a product. Um, And then I think really developed virtual and digital presentations to the point where they became essentially a new uh, revenue stream as well. So I remember a lot of our mantra during those first few months was just saying, we've just got to be there on the other side. We've just got to be there on the other side. And if we're still there on the other side, we're going to be a more resilient, more adaptable and more effective organization for it. As with any organization, you know, the tough times are what makes you, uh, not the good times. And I think what's been so extraordinary about this last year is that the resilience and adaptability that so many of us have built up on both an individual and organizational level are going to stand us in incredible stead over the next decade. Uh, And and I think I'm really excited to actually see what other people come up with um, as a result of that
1: yeah it's huge i'm I'm sitting here nodding um have very similar experience in in our business, same as you I can remember the uh you know fourteenth fifteenth, and sixteenth of March. I see it into my brain where kind of ninety five percent of revenue disappears overnight, mm-hmm. and having to make decisions around whether the business is gonna be here, we had to make some of the toughest decisions to let people in the team go um And actually sat down and came up with a framework through those decisions. And one of the levels of that was that we're still here on the other Mm. side. And the top level was that we're still here with everyone and doing exactly the same thing. But that just wasn't possible at that point in time. So, yeah, I I know that devastation and heartache when you have so much care and particularly the people within, within your team. Mm-hmm. Let alone what you've built up. What surprised you through that, whether it was um, how your team responded and reacted, or maybe even how your clients kind of connected through that really early t- stage?
2: I think what surprised me so much is throughout the entire thing, Gus re- still remained an asshole, but he became much more adaptable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, just teasing. Um, <laughs> uh, I think the What surprised me was our ability to look in the corners of our talents and our information streams and our knowledge and find new things that were already there, but just new ways of doing things and just constantly reinventing stuff. From the client's perspective, everything went like quiet for like three months but then they started to trickle in and they were like so unsure and you had to like all of a sudden tell them a much bigger story and be like come with us on this uh, you know this journey where you're holding the hand their hands so much you know and like it's going to be fine we'll do this digitally it'll be live and what also surprised me is how terrible it is staring into a cold dark lens of a camera and zoom fatigue and stuff like that how difficult that is i can't imagine how news reporters do it or you know i mean that's a difficult skill to bring life to something where there's if you make your stupid jokes no one's laughing and that lack of human connection (laughs) yeah they're all laughing
1: you just have to assume they are yeah
2: yeah you know when when i said i was first going to be a comedian everyone was laughing at me no one's laughing now Um, oh my god sorry terrible (laughs) um but uh it was surprising how difficult it is to share the same knowledge without the human connection that surprised us a lot but what was interesting was hearing the feedback afterwards um we that we did bring it to life but how you're putting yourself out there but getting nothing and that was part of the fun of of live events. Yeah, I guess that was the most surprising to me, but Gus and I are much better presenters and much better I guess storytellers now. we massaged our narrative into very creative distinct um and also funny stories uh which is much more powerful. That human connection, like we're all about gold-plated evidence, the frontiers of science and technology. But for me, it reiterated the fact that story is everything, that you really have to connect on a deep emotional level to get people to change. The facts are nothing without the emotional, I guess, hook to draw you in, to listen to the facts and then act upon them.
1: Sounds like it was probably something that was always there, but almost amplified the power and the the connection around stories. Gus, for you, what comes to mind around what surprised you, whether it was the way that your team turned up, each other turned up or, or clients?
3: For me, the most surprising thing about the last 12 months has been the realization of just how important the personal is. It's one thing people telling you that, that that's true. Uh, I, I think it's a, it's very different to experience that on a global scale, to sort of feel that despite all of the technology, and in some respects, the pandemic has accelerated the technological explosion, uh, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's work from home or clean energy revolution, or, uh, you know, vaccines, we've seen this kind of, uh, or, or, you know, the growth of big tech companies, online shopping, whatever you call it, we've seen kind of 10 years of change happen in 10 months. And yet, what's so interesting is that, as technology has increasingly become a layer of everything and as our lives have become more and more digital uh, we all we all crave that personal uh, sort of human connection uh, more and more so there's this kind of really interesting paradox that's happened and i think it's just become a lot clearer over the last 12 months which is that uh, humans uh, are a, tri- a tribal species we we work best when we are with other people and the more time we spend on the video screens, the more ones and zeros that flow through onto our screens and into our heads, the more we crave human touch, the more we want to just be in a room and you know pick up on threads of conversation, the more we want to feel the energy of uh, an audience clapping or someone even just giving you a hug and, and saying, hey, the, um, it's great to see you. I haven't seen you in so long. So I, th- I think what surprised me most is that in a world where we became very disconnected, uh, it feels like we've all become in some respects more connected because we understand what matters most.
1: Yeah, I agree. I almost feel like we, we um, are valuing that more and I hope that that lasts, you know, that sense. Mm. That sometimes we can take that for granted, we can take an audience for granted, that hug for granted. But I think in those moments we're recognising that there's value Um, and gratitude in that
3: and sorry and also um, i just wanted to add to that as well maybe you know what we realize as well is that school isn't about the lessons that you you get and going to conferences isn't about the information that you download and going to work isn't about producing reports they're they're all about other things and the other things are always human beings and maybe Mm. that's what we've realized in the last 12 months as well
2: Oh, I'm going to give you a hug next time I see you guess
1: <laughs> And whisper you're an asshole in
0: <laughs> here. <laughs> Here's it's a 10-day asshole.
1: That's right. so yep. And he'll an be asshole. so grateful
0: for it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tony. I look forward to giving you a hug. You. <laughs> Bit of pain with your pleasure. Yeah. That's always good fun.
1: Now, one of the things you have uh, worked on and pulled together is, is an ebook where you talk about the Great Transformation, Gus. I'm going to go to you. What is the Great Transformation?
3: All right, the Great Transformation is something we are very excited about. Uh, it's actually not original. The use of the the first use of the Great Transformation is actually a book written by a Polish economist in 1944 and his name is Carl Polanyi and he's the best economist of the 20th century that nobody's heard about and it's a wonderful book about kind of you know how the world he sort of looked forward and said that this is how he thought the world would change over the next 50 years and his predictions were incredibly accurate and he and he has a wonderful way of kind of framing the kind of move from you know efficiency and hyper productivity and capitalism through to kind of more caring economies uh you know where uh, with sort of more equality um and and more sort of um communal spaces and 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 communal forms of kind of getting on with each other so he he kind of goes from the left to, to the right and it's, it's just a wonderful book um so this is a bit of a homage to to Karl Polanyi and the the Great Transformation is really a document to explore the big trends of the next decade to say what's coming down the line, what matters, what should we pay, be paying attention to. And what we've done is we've identified what we call nine technology trends. So the big kind of sweeping technology trends that we think every leader or uh, should be aware of um, and that organizations really need to be looking at. and And to be saying we have a you know we have a response or we have a plan for each of these technology trends of either how they are or aren't going to be incorporated or used in our business or or how we're going to protect against competitors who are going to be you know looking at those technology trends to do the same And then also what we call the nine human skills. So this idea that, uh, as I've already mentioned, in a world where technology is a layer over everything, it turns out that it's the human skills that that distinguish you, uh, that it's the human skills that set you apart from the rest. And so we've looked at sort of what we call nine soft skills um, around how you can really set yourself apart in the next economy. And we're really excited about it. We think it's a great document and uh, it's sort of, combines, it puts together five years or the last five or six years of research that we've been doing and presents it in a way that we think is fun and exciting and, um, and hopefully provokes interest uh, to get people to find out more.
1: Without kind of giving it all away, Tane, I'm wondering if you're happy to share maybe three of the the technology trends out of the nine that you believe that workplaces need to be looking at, need to be mindful of, even if they don't take on board, be mindful of, as, as Gus said, you know, around competitors. Uh, what are some of those trends?
2: Well, I think we're all digitized and pretty well connected these days, so I'll leave those aside. I think cogn- what we call cognition, what I believe is we're moving into the age of cognition, and that's basically through the lens of machine learning or artificial intelligence. We we have these algorithms now that can do superhuman tasks, but in very defined ways. And so don't be scared. It's the marriage of you know humans and the algorithms, humans and the machines working together. But you really need to embrace this technology to augment your own ability. And it basically takes care of the boring tasks, like sifting through heaps heaps of data, and you know long legal documents and that kind of stuff it can do it for you in very narrow tasks and it frees you up to do the more creative and innovative things that that will progress business so definitely get in bed with ai it's here you already do it zoom is using it right now to modulate our voice and the sound it's an algorithm with your facebook your google Um, searches, everything. So it's already a, a layer over pretty much everything we do in the digital and internet space. So learn to embrace it and think about it as a tool that you can train and use to improve yourself. It doesn't own you. Having said that, diversity is incredibly important. The data that you feed it will give you back a certain result. It will be biased by the data that you feed it. And also if the algorithm is written by a bunch of white tech bros in Silicon Valley. It's going to give you a bunch of probably chauvinistic, white bread, rich people answers. And so it's really important to diversify your use of machine learning as well. So AI and machine learning would probably be number one. I think embracing robotics and automation is another one especially for manual labor, whether it's an exoskeleton or ro- big robots moving around stuff in warehouses. I think that's really important. And also driverless cars. I think it's going to change transport supply chains and the way we manufacture. And the other one, I would say I'm a biologist. So biotech, what we're doing in medicine and you know, our ability to cut and paste DNA, to create immunosuppressant drugs, to combat cancer highly specific mrna with covid vaccines i mean the stuff we're doing with the code of life is unbelievable we're also decoding the way plants and fungi and our microbiome works as well because i mean we 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 contain multitudes we're actually more alien than we are human most of our cells are bacteria viruses fungi protozoa amoebas. So we're actually more other things than we are humans. So we need to embrace that and to understand it because it ultimately, the way we treat our the environment that is us ultimately dictates our health and our prosperity. So those would be my three. So AI, cognition, machine learning as one, automation, robotics as another, and biotech and the way we are basically taking control over our own evolution, active evolution. Rather than passive evolution,
1: so fascinating, and I think one of the one of the invitations that you both provide in in this book, but also in the conversation, is that it's relevant for everyone to be looking at these trends, regardless of what, what kind of work that you do, regardless of what industry that you currently kind of work in. Is that whilst it might be happening over there. It won't be long until it's having an impact over here as well. Also, on a personal level, I'm a mom of a 13-year-old, so I'm really waiting for driverless cars because I do not want to teach him how to drive. I'm just (laughs) assuming I won't have to. It'll all be
0: there.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Teenage boys in particular. I was a nightmare on the road. Go as fast as you can anywhere. Break all the rules. Yeah. So if we can speed up that technology, uh, (laughs) I'm
1: really happy.
2: Yeah. Sign them up to your Uber account as well Get get them out of Don't put them behind the wheel
1: Yeah, a bicycle and an Uber account all he needs, it'll be fine Gus, from the human skills perspectives, what are the what are the skills? And I know we call them soft skills, and we know that they're the hardest bloody skills to to master and to come back to. What are the core ones? Uh, particularly if I go for um, leaders inside organisations who are often the heartbeat, the role models, the the people that hold others accountable around mm-hmm. how humans are treated and cared for and looked for. Uh, what are the the top two to three skills that you see are going to be really critical in the future?
3: I'll start with, I guess, what we're, what we're thinking about as as the master skill uh, for leaders going forward into the next decade, which is, it's simple, it's adaptability. Uh, what's, we've spent really the last 30 to 40 years in business um, prioritizing efficiency and productivity, uh, which has been, you know, fair enough. Uh, that certainly brought a lot of um, benefits and gifts, but it's also produced a lot of damage, both on a sort of uh, individual and a societal level. Uh, I think what the pandemic has really put into perspective is that uh, what it's done is it's kind of shifted the conversation in business uh, to say efficiency no longer has to necessarily be the primary value above all other values, that we're now looking a lot more at things like adaptability, purpose, impact. And those trends were obviously in place before the pandemic hit, but I think the pandemic has really crystallised those. And so what we're arguing is we're saying that uh, it's now arguably more important for a business to be adaptable than it is for a business to be efficient, which is quite a claim. I mean, that, you know, it's, that's, that's a claim that could certainly be disputed.
1: And it's, um, hmm. there's some sunk cost in that from time from technology from people are halfway through projects around efficiency and you're saying that's not going to be the fact like you know there's there's Mm. um there's a loss aversion (laughs) that can come with with
3: that as well and of course there's a you know there's nuance to this we're not naive (coughs) we're not saying throw all of your efficiency out the window what we're saying is that you know as a business need to kind of almost thread the needle between adaptability and efficiency as much as you can and what we're starting to discover is that if you're super efficient when it's when a black swan event hits when something comes out of the blue uh, you're no longer as resilient or capable of shifting or pivoting as a business that has maybe prioritized adaptability over efficiency so what we're saying here is that there are a number of tools and strategies that you can use to maybe build in some kind of adaptability into your organizational model to build some kind of adaptability into your business model uh into your product lines Um, and to start saying we're willing to actually sacrifice a little bit of efficiency to be more adaptable. Because what we also know is that this is not the last surprise. There are more surprises coming down the line. We're now living in a world that is so complex that the likelihood uh, of another crazy event that no one predicted is increasing all the time. Uh, and, And if you think you know, the pandemic was big and changed all our lives. While there's plenty more surprises out there waiting, and so what we're now saying is that officials, that leaders, need to to really be aware of that and and start thinking about um, whether they're ready for the next one.
1: Before you jump into the next ones, what I what comes to mind for me? Because I think adaptability can be that sense of being ready for change. How do leaders navigate or how do they know that the difference between being adaptable versus, and the word that came to mind for me was seasick, (laughs) kind of change fatigue, where we just kind of keep changing from one thing to the other and we call it adaptability, but actually we're kind of leaving people feeling a bit nauseous in the wake.
3: So what we what we found really useful, and we we did this a future crunch as well. Um, you know, this is something we actually utilised in our own organisation. Is is we use it, use the idea of fast twitch and slow twitch muscles. Hmm. So in this, in, uh, what you need as an organization in order to be adaptable is you need to have both. Your fast twitch muscles are the muscles of a sprinter or, or a body or a weightlifter. Um, that's the, the sort of fast twitch muscles in your organization that allow you to pivot, to adapt, to spin up a new product line in a week, or to you know cancel everything and, and move online. It's those rapid... We've been doing a lot of fast twitch in the last 12 yep. months, uh, all of us. At the same time, though like a marathon runner whose slow twitch muscles are built for endurance. You need to have another layer of organizational transformation going on that has a much longer term view that is changing things over one, two or five years and to have a sort of a, a broader kind of change remit um, happening at the same time as the as, as the sort of faster quick pace changes. And what that means is that you're looking at different layering in your organization and you have people who are responsible for different things. So you have some people who are responsible for the fast twitch changes, other people who are sort of working on the longer term changes. And if you, as an organization sort of say, look, we've, we think we've got the balance between those fast twitch and slow twitch muscles right, that allows you to be adaptable at the same time as uh, keeping longer-term strategy and, and sort of the broader picture in mind. And so that's been a useful concept for us. And even in our discussions, we sort of say, you know, is that a fast-twitch change? Is that a slow-twitch change? You know, who's, who's handling what? Uh, it's been a great tool.
1: It's a really powerful language to, to know that mm. there, there still needs to be a foundation settling mm. across it all. And that's that
3: example of narrative and story. You know, mm. it's all very well for us. We could call that something else. I don't know, give it a really boring name. Um, but, but being able to talk about it in the context of a marathon runner or a sprinter immediately makes that real or, or accessible for someone. Um, so mm. at the same time as you're doing all of this, you need to use the right language and, and use metaphor, story, instantly accessible things that maybe aren't technically perfectly accurate but allow people to gain understanding a lot quicker
1: it's that ability it's that trampoline to be able to jump off and and stick and yeah come Mm -hmm. back to it any other kind of key human skills in the next decade you think leaders need to have
2: well i think purpose is one i mean we've kind of covered storytelling in general throughout the narrative so we'll skip that one but i think purpose is really important Put put it this way: dealing with a few uh, indigenous elders throughout our time with Future Crunch, which has been such an incredible experience. One of the cool things that they said that they often say Western society, and in particular European society, is defined by "I think, therefore I am," and they come from a different place. I am located, therefore I am. Mm -hmm. I have place, you know on the ground and in community. I I have a location. It's much more of a broad community and, I guess, environmentally focused place in the world. And if you take that towards corporations, I think capitalism and the old milking the cash cow is, I make money, therefore I am. Whether And I think you could flip that, like, I create purpose, and I create more value than I capture. And I see myself in the broader community and the environment, therefore, I am. And I think that's a v- like if you have purpose, it's much more sustainable. If you're going for the short-term goals and just for money, uh, I think you're going to be doomed in this next the next economy or during this great transformation. And so I think purpose or whatever you want to call it is a very good lens to look at your strategy, especially long-term strategy to move forward for long-term sustainable growth.
1: So adaptability. The power of storytelling and that can be through a metaphor or a, a you know language so it doesn't have to be, you know, beginning, middle, end type story but the, the power of that narrative um, and then reconnecting to purpose and what I heard Tane was around purpose that's beyond that I'm part of a bigger community that's beyond even what we're trying to do or beyond our team, but where, where are we positioned, where are we located? That might be geographically, but also within a community sense.
2: Yeah. How are we going to make things not only better for our community, but for our country, for the entire planet and all of our roommates, whether it might be microbes, plants, or fellow our fellow human beings? I think that's really important. <laughs>
1: One of the things that really strikes me about what both of you bring um, and obviously what's been woven in and embedded into Future Crunch, and I think you even use the term of intelligent optimism, is a sense of trying to find these stories of possibility, trying to find the, the stories of hope, of humanity that kind of come through what happens in crisis and in change in and also sometimes in culture, we, we're sitting here in Australia, um, is cynicism. So it's the opposite of that. And sometimes cynicism comes from experience where people go, we tried it, it didn't work. I'm, I'm scarred. I'm, I'm, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not going to happen. Um, how do you shift, whether it's an audience or a group that you're working with, or what's the pathway from cynicism to optimism? Because sometimes if you douse cynicism with optimism, people double down on yeah but you don't know me you don't know what we've been through <laughs> how have you yeah. seen navigated that pathway
3: maybe i could share a a personal story uh, here to, to 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 sort of talk about how 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 i do that on a personal level which is that um i try to move through the world um, looking for examples of utopia uh, and by utopia i don't mean a shining city on the hill i'm talking about places or institutions or organizations or communities who are doing the very best that human beings can do. Uh, and, and I've got an example recently of that, which is that my daughter Cleo was born 10 days ago. Uh, it's our second child. Uh, and it's amazing to, to, you know, have another tiny human in the house. Um, but she, uh, struggled it on her second night at home. Um, she stopped breathing, and we were rushed to the children's hospital uh, here in Melbourne. And as traumatic and, and scary as that was, the experience of actually going to the children's hospital itself uh, was extraordinary. Uh, because in, even in sort of a, a very scary and dark time, to be in this institution that is just so, um, that this world class democratic institution was also super inspiring. Uh, This is a place that has the best equipment, cutting edge science, amazing research labs. You know, the machines there were all state of the art. And on top of that, you've got all these nurses and doctors with like incredible emotional intelligence and people who are super compassionate and empathetic. And so they're there with the cutting edge science and the technology. And then you put all of that together and you make it free for every person in society. So you say, we're going to take the best science, the best human intelligence and emotional skills, and then we're going to make it publicly accessible to every Sudanese refugee, to every yummy mummy Instagram influencer from the South Yarra, to um, working class people, to people who don't speak the same language as us. Any, If you are in the society, you get access to this place for free. So it's this not only cutting edge, uh, amazing scientific institution, but it's also the most democratic place you can be uh, in society. And so when I go to places like that, it makes me think, well, utopia isn't something that's in the future. We can create these utopias here on Earth right now, and they exist, and we can take the lessons and the structures and the, uh, the sort of inspiration from those places, and we can recreate them in others as well. And I think if you go through the world looking for those small examples of utopia, um, it, it can quickly um, remove the cynicism, and at the same time is acknowledging that that doesn't exist in most other places.
1: And it's being able to lift your head up. Did you feel like, did you have a sense of that even at the time? Because I can imagine totally. you, you're so focused on your daughter no. and that experience. Absolutely.
3: Yeah. I remember looking there at the beeping lights and the tubes mm-hmm. and, the, and the, you know, the various machines and thinking, I cannot believe that this stuff is all accessible and available to everyone. So at the same, in fact, it actually gave me hope and said, she's, she's receiving the best care that it's possible to get, but so is everybody else who has a problem. Um, and that is uh, that kind of communal feeling of hope, healing, possibility um, is, I think, a big part of the healing process.
2: Community is everything because I was at your home taking care of your slightly older daughter who was poo numbing all over the
3: place. And yeah, that's right. was... Tane, Tane sent me a message uh, <laughs> on the day that we uh, on the day that we were rushing to the hospital. Said I'm now covered uh, in um, head. To, you know, my entire arm is covered in your daughter's uh, in your daughter's pee. <laughs>
1: <laughs> welcome to Community the family collaboration said yeah. that's right that it's my third
3: collaboration said it's my Trump's genius said it was, it's my third nappy change ever and uh it's everywhere
1: <laughs> it's creativity isn't it expression
3: yeah I with it with no, yeah. it right.
1: um that pathway from cynicism to optimism for you Tane what uh what comes to mind
2: um, I think it's really it's focusing on solutions rather than the problems. Um, I think really tuning your information diet, what the the information that you feed yourself, just as you know nutrition. If you we we focus a lot on diet, like eating good things, makes you feel better, makes you healthier. Flexing your muscles and doing cardio, your fast twitch and your slow twitch muscles, make you healthier. Um, we should think about that with with information, the way we think about things. We need sh- short, you know headlines of good information, good news, and then we need also deep dives into really good long narratives that nourish you rather than take away. So choose information that feeds you that props you up because just like anything, what you take in reflects a lot of what you feel and what comes out. And so if you if you choose a narrative, information that gives you hope i think you you believe that solutions are possible rather than everything's a problem and i think that's due to our algorithms and the way information is fed to us through the mainstream media and our social media feeds Uh, we get addicted to negative news uh, and that's a huge problem. For example, like when I first met Gus, he, he was doing a lot of stuff about the environment and, and climate change, and really depressed because it's really depressing if you're only looking at the problems. And then he changed the way he looked at information, and I saw him like smile and talk about the environment. Like the narrative totally changed. Like our conversations actually mm-hmm. changed. Um, I was born in New Mexico, in rural New Mexico, in the United States. And when I had a certain um, a certain president, the last one who came into power, I think we call him Twitler or <laughs> Agent Orange. I was obsessed with freaking out about that because I really didn't like what they were doing. And on social media, Twitter, Facebook, I kept clicking on articles. And then all of a sudden you train your little algorithm to give you that information. So you're getting an information diet that is entirely negative and completely biased. And we're just not, we're not equipped to deal with the worst stuff from all over the world, and it makes us feel really poor. And so that made me feel really sad. And so I had to actively deal with the way you consume information. And so I stopped clicking on presidential tweets or any of that kind of stuff. I started looking at good news and scientific stories, and then my entire information stream changed, and I started to feel much better about the world and realized there was hope. I think that's really important because people... They don't actively think about how they consume information because when we find a good story and fully give ourselves to it, or stories that can act through us, they breathe new life into everything. And it gives us like direction that comes from our heart, adds the momentum of a deeper purpose that really makes us feel alive. And that's what we're here to do on Spaceship Earth. A great story and a satisfying life share a pretty vital element it's it's a compelling plot that moves us towards solutions and goals and to solve solutions that are much bigger than our own successes and failures and so a broader universal narrative through the lens of intelligent optimism i think is so important and can help anyone or any organization
1: And it starts with that choice and awareness that actually we can. I think so often we just kind of are responding rather than really reacting. And I'm often, even now at the point, as I said, I've got a 13-year-old and 11-year-old and having those conversations with them that it's the media's job to be telling these like stories and, in fact, their number one job is to have you engaged as long as possible. And so if that is through what's not right or what's not working or those kind of fear-based stories, that's that's kind of the methodology, but there are choices and ways that we can come around that. So I love that, finding it in the moments that utopia is around us when we pay attention to it and, and then being able to really be conscious of what we're consuming and not just nutrition, but but where is the information and the stories, and there are phenomenal stories out there. Before we wrap up, just on a personal level, obviously so much of what you do and, and even the decision-making and ideas and the change um, you've need to make in business and starting to kind of come through that requires energy. What are some really practical things that you each do um, personally to, to feel like you can re-engage with your own creativity but kind of reconnect with your own humanity, and that might be whether it's it's movement or you know the stories that you consume. What do you do to kind of reconnect with your own energy? Tane, I'll go to you.
2: Uh, the way I reconnect with my own energy is I've been doing a bit of Tai Chi lately, which is fun. Try and do a bit of yoga, uh, I guess, a broad broad range of movement. I mean, I was a, I used to do cycling a lot and I love to get on two wheels and just go explore explore nature. I think nature is one of the most important things that um, relaxes and inspires creative and unconscious thinking. And also writing stories. I, I'm a science nerd, so I'm like, evidence, evidence, fact, fact. But actually, Future Crunch is one of the vessels that I use to expand my mind and bring a greater breadth to my my life i I think it's great to write stories and tell a sexy, fun or funny narrative with the when you keep the facts sacred. uh okay. those would be my yeah ways that I do that.
1: Beautiful guess uh
3: I have no energy.
1: No. kind uh, of you um, got yourself a COVID baby. i got a puppy. But... You're, a daughter, <laughs> a, a,
3: a 17- you're dead a,
1: inside.
3: A 17 a month old daughter and now a 10 day old daughter. Uh, and so the answer to your question is that I hope one day to have energy again. Uh, I very,
1: very much look forward to that. Just find the stories of people that have it and <laughs> it, it'll come back. <laughs> look, it's been such a delight to chat with you both and, um, and to really really dive into some of that thinking around what's next and the possibility of uh, adaptability um, and some of those trends that we can bring in that, the optimism into our world. I'd love to wrap up by asking a question of both of you. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. Gus, I'll go to you first. When you hear that term, what does it take or what does it mean to you to live a standout life?
0: Wow, what
3: a question. Wonder if I just think about it for him?
1: Yeah, Tane. Oh, we'll leave the um, sleep-deprived dad for a moment and uh, go to you, Tane.
3: A standout life
2: is having a COVID baby and still showing up to a podcast. Totally. That a totally.
1: <laughs> That's a standing applause moment for sure. Uh,
2: yeah, seriously.
1: I was hoping the baby uh, would be here, but uh, <laughs> next time.
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, a standout life for me is just – doing any little bit that you can to make the world a better place. Because we all take, we all have to consume, we all have to do things, we all have the daily grind. But a standout person living a standout life is someone who gives a little more than they take. And that's a standout life for me.
3: Yeah, I I, I agree with, uh, I I mean, Tane and I, I think have very similar values on on a lot of this stuff. So I, I agree wholeheartedly with what he said. For me, the way I, um, I I think a standout life is is one where, in business or in your work, whatever line of work that is, you, you create more value than you capture. I think if you can honestly uh, hand on heart say that you're doing that, uh, I think that, that that's to sort of that's the way of really knowing that you're doing good work. Uh, it's to have um, you know a, a happy family at home and a, a connected, happy family and to have a, a calm and peaceful mind, and to have a, a healthy body. And I think if you can get those four things right, um, that's a standout life.
1: I'd sign up to those for sure. Thank you so much again for your time. Gus, go and find some sleep. Tane, be there for the poo captures if you need to. It's been lovely to hang out with you both.
3: <laughs> Thank you so much, Alison. It's been such a pleasure thank you very much alison it's been great to be on the podcast uh, and and wonderful to chat to you um, and also if people are interested uh, at all in the future crunch content they can go to our website and download the great transformation from the website and also if they're interested in following us and, and keeping up to date with some of those stories of progress and and change that, that we've mentioned uh, they can sign up to our newsletter uh, again, just going to the website and clicking on the subscribe link. And we send that newsletter out every uh, week or two to more than 40,000 people from around the world.
1: Awesome. Thank you. Must promote, must promote. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Always on. Oh, you're Sorry. doing so well, gosh.